my friends. In the gospel, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Here, it seems to me, he is criticizing the Jews chiefly, as they put all the stress upon doctrines and they took no care to practice. Paul also blames them for this when he says, Behold, you are called a Jew, and you rest in the law and make your boast of God and know his will. But you have no advantage by this, so long as it is not manifested in your life and in your works. But Christ himself did not stop here. He said something more. That is, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? For not only, he says, is the one who has faith, if his life is neglected, cast out of heaven, but also, besides his faith, he may have done many signs. But if he has done nothing good, even this man is equally shut out from that sacred place. For many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Do you see how he secretly points to himself here and after at the end of his whole sermon? Do you see how he implies that he is the judge? First he signified the sword of punishment that comes from sin, and now he proceeds to show who is the one that will punish. He did not openly say, I am the one, but many will say to me, suggesting the very same thing. If he were not the judge, how could he have told them, and then I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Everywhere, Christ bids us to practice great care of our way of life. This is because it is not possible for someone living rightly and freed from all his passions ever to be overlooked. If, by chance, he falls into error, God will quickly guide him back to the truth. There are some who say the condemned souls in this gospel are lying about having prophesied in his name. This is how some try to explain why these men are not saved. But then it would follow that Christ's conclusion is contrary to what he intends. Because surely his intention is to say that faith has no value without works. Then, to enhance this, he added miracles also, declaring that not only faith, but even performing miracles does nothing for someone who performs them without virtue. If these souls did not actually perform miracles, how could this point be made here? And besides, those souls would not have dared when the judgment day came to say false things to his face. And their reply, too, and their speaking in the manner of a question implies they have performed miracles. What I say is that they, having seen a result different from what they expected, 
After they'd been admired by all on earth for their miracles, seeing themselves there with nothing but punishment awaiting them. They're amazed and surprised when they say, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? How then do you turn away from us now? What is the meaning of this strange and unexpected result? But even though they are surprised by their being punished after their working miracles, you should not be surprised. For all their grace was the free gift of him who gave it, but they contributed nothing on their part. And so they're justly punished for being so ungrateful and cold towards him, the one who had so greatly honored them as to bestow his grace upon them, unworthy as they were. So what, someone could say, did they perform these miracles while committing sins? Some do say that it was not at the same time they did these miracles that they also committed sins, but that they changed afterwards and then committed their sins. But if this is the case, once again, the point which Christ is working to make fails to be established. What he took pains to point out is this, that neither faith nor miracles have any value when one does not actually practice. Paul said something to this effect. Though I have faith so that I could move mountains and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not charity, I am nothing. So who are these men, you ask? Many of those that believed received gifts such as the one in Mark 9 that was casting out devils and was not with Christ. Or like Judas. Because even he too, wicked as he was, had a gift. And this can also be found in the Old Testament. There, grace is often given to unworthy people so that it might do good to others. All men were not meant for all things, but some are of a pure life and do not have great faith, and others just the opposite. By what Jesus says here, while he urges one to show great faith, the others he was encouraging by his unspeakable gift to become better men. And so also he bestows that grace in abundance. For we performed, it is said, many mighty works. But then I will say to them, I do not know you. For now indeed they suppose they are my friends. But then they will know that I did not give to them as my friends. And why be surprised if he has given gifts to men that believe in him, although they don't have a life suitable to their faith, when even on those who have neither of these, he's unquestionably found working? For example, Salam was far from both faith and a truly good life, but nevertheless grace was given to him for the good of other men. And Pharaoh, too, was of the same sort. Yet for all that, even to him, God revealed the future. 
And Nebuchadnezzar was full of wickedness, yet once again to him he revealed things to come after many generations. And to the son of Nebuchadnezzar, even though he surpassed his father's wickedness, God showed him the things to come, ordering a marvelous and great dispensation. Because at that time, the beginnings of the gospel were taking place. And it was necessary that the manifestation of its power should be abundant. So even many unworthy would receive gifts. Although from these miracles, they did not gain anything. Rather, they're all the more punished. And so it was to them that he uttered those fearful words. I never knew you. There are many for whom his justice begins already, even here. Many whom he turns away from even before the day of judgment. Let us fear then, my friends. Let us pay careful attention to our life. We should not think ourselves worse off because we don't perform miracles. Because performing miracles will never be any advantage to us. And so there's not any disadvantage in our not performing them. Just so long as we pay attention to virtue. Because for the miracles, we must give a return to God. But for our life and our works, God gives a return to us. So far, all of Christ's words have been about the future of a kingdom, and an unimaginable reward and consolation, and so on. It is also his will to give fruits out of things here on earth, and to show the great strength of virtue even in this life. What is this strength? To live in safety, to be easily subdued by no terror, and to stand superior to all that cruelly persecute us. What can compare to this? Not even a king can provide this for himself, but only the man who follows after virtue. He alone possesses these things in full abundance. Amidst the constant ebb and flow of this world, he enjoys a great calm. The most marvelous thing is this, not just in good weather, but when the storm is vehement and the turmoil is great, and the temptations are constant, he cannot be shaken even the slightest bit. For the rain descended, says Jesus. The floods came, the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded upon the rock. By rain and floods and winds, he's speaking metaphorically about the tragedies and afflictions that come upon men such as false accusations, plots, bereavements, deaths, loss of friends, vexations from strangers, all the troubles in our life that anyone could mention. But to none of these, he says, does such a soul give way, because it is founded on the rock. He calls the steadfastness of his doctrine a rock because, in truth, his commands are stronger than any rock. 
They lift a person above all the waves of human affairs. For he who keeps these things strictly will not only have the advantage over men who frustrate him, but even over the devils plotting against him. And that is not vain boasting. Job is our witness, who received all the assaults of the devil and stood unmovable. And the apostles, too, are our witnesses. For when the waves of the whole world were beating against them, when both nations and princes, both their own people and strangers, both the evil spirits and the devil and every engine was set in motion, they stood firmer than a rock and dispersed it all. What could be happier than this kind of life? For this, not wealth, not strength of body, not glory, not power, nor anything else will be able to secure, but only the possession of virtue. For there is not, there is no other life we may find free from all evils but this life alone. And you are witnesses. You know the plots in king's courts, the turmoils and the troubles in the houses of the rich. And you know that among the apostles, there was no such thing. So what, did nothing bad happen to them? Did they suffer no evil at the hands of evil men? No, the amazing thing is this. They were the object of many plots, and many storms burst upon them, but their souls were not overcome by these things. They were not thrown into despair, but while physically vulnerable, they wrestled, prevailed, and triumphed. And you too, if you're willing to do exactly the same things, will laugh all your troubles to scorn. Yes, because if you are strengthened with the philosophy underlying these warnings, then nothing will be able to hurt you. This is because the one who lays traps for you will have no way to harm you. Will he take away your money? Fine, because before he even threatened you with this, you were commanded to despise money and to abstain from it to such an extent that you were not supposed to ask the Lord for it. Does he cast you into prison? Fine. Before your imprisonment, you were taught to live like you were crucified to the world. Does he say evil things? Fine. Christ has delivered you from this pain as well by promising you a great reward for enduring evil and setting you far apart from the anger and vexation that comes from evil so as to command you to pray for those who persecute you. Does the enemy banish you and entangle you in innumerable difficulties? Fine. He's making the crown more glorious for you. Does he destroy and murder you? Even this profits you very greatly, procuring for you the rewards of the martyrs and conducting you more quickly into the untroubled haven. It also affords you matter for a more abundant recompense and contrives for you to make a gain of the universal penalty. The most marvelous thing of all is that the plotters far from injuring them at all, rather make the objects of their spite all the more honored.
What can compare to this? Nothing can compare to this way of life. Consider the apostles. Do you see a noble spirit? Do you see a rock laughing waves to scorn? Do you see a house unshaken? And what is even more marvelous, far from turning cowards themselves at the plots formed against them, they took even more courage and cast the plotters into greater anxiety. For so he who punches stone is himself the one smitten. He that kicks against the spikes is himself the one stabbed and severely wounded. He who is forming plots against the virtuous is himself the one in jeopardy. For wickedness becomes all the weaker the more it sets itself against virtue. Just as one who wraps up fire in cloth fails to extinguish the flame and only burns up the cloth, so too he who spites virtuous men by oppressing them and binding them makes them more glorious and destroys himself. For the more troubles you suffer, while living righteously, the stronger you become. The more we honor self-restraint, the less we need anything. The less we need anything, the stronger we grow. Just like John the Baptist, no man pained him, but instead he caused pain to Herod. The man with nothing prevailed against the man that ruled. The one who wore a diadem and purple with endless pomp trembles and is in fear of the one that is stripped of all. Not even when John was beheaded could Herod see his head without fear. Even after his death, he had the terror of him in full strength. Hear what he said. This is John whom I slew. Now, the expression, I slew, is not that of a man exulting, but a man soothing his own terror and persuading his troubled soul to call to mind that he himself slew him. So great is the force of virtue that even after death it's more powerful than the living. For the same reason, when John was alive, those who possessed great wealth came to him and asked, What should we do? These people had so much, and yet they decided to learn the way of prosperity from the one who had nothing. The rich went to learn from the poor. The soldiers went to learn from the one who did not even have a house. Do you see the rock? You see the sand, how easily it sinks down, how it yields to trouble how it is overthrown, even though it has the support of royalty, of numbers, and of nobility. It does not merely fall, but it falls with great force. For great indeed, Christ said, was the fall of it. There is no trifling risk. What is at risk is the loss of the soul, the loss of heaven, and the loss of those immortal blessings. Even before those losses, no life is as wretched as the one that goes this way. Dwelling with continual despair, alarms, concerns, anxieties. 
which a certain wise man suggested when he said, The wicked flee when no man is pursuing. These men tremble at their own shadows, suspect their friends, their enemies, their servants, those they know and those they don't know. Before their punishment there, they suffer extreme punishment here as well. To convey this, Christ said, great was the fall of it. Finishing these good commandments with that suitable ending and persuading the most unbelieving to flee from vice even for the sake of the things of this world. Conscious, therefore, of all these things, both the present and the future, let us flee from vice. Let us emulate virtue, that we may not work fruitlessly and at random, but may both enjoy the security here and partake of the glory there, a glory unto which God grant we may all attain by the grace and love towards man of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory and the might forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>